thank you for uh, joining us on the latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. My name is Dr. Hamid Kambari. I'm the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. And my guest today is Dr. Elaine Wan, who has a very interesting paper, white paper on clinical utilization of digital health published recently in our journal. Elaine, welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, my name is Dr. Elaine Wan, and I'm uh, a cardiac electrophysiologist and director of electrophysiology research at Columbia University in New York. Um, well, Elaine, uh, th th uh, the paper that you wrote, it certainly has been uh, very popular with our readership. Um, I wanted to kind of get a sense of how this paper came about and um, what was the process of writing this paper like? Right. Well, first, I'd like to say thank you to all the uh, Digital Health Committee of Harvard and Society as we work together on this paper, um, including yourself, um, Dr. Nasir Marouche, um, a lot of key um, co-authors in the paper. And I think the uh, main uh, concern is we understood as a society that um, the push for digital health has definitely increased, especially in the setting of pandemic. Uh, people have been using more and more uh, wearables um, to get information about their healthcare and sharing it with their healthcare providers. And for us in electrophysiology, remote monitoring is no stranger as we uh, do it a lot for uh, our implantable devices. And so all of the committee members, which include um, Naza Makum, Zaki Atia, Dr. Sam Azaratham, Eugene Chung, uh, Layla Sadagar, Dav uh, Elizabeth Davenport, Sonal Khatib, Dr. Stuart Mandel, David McManus, Rajiv Pathak, Minchu Tarakla, uh, Keljun Taraki, uh, Emma Svenberg, Deva Schwartzman, Dr. Nicholas Peters, uh, Dr. Rod Passman, um, Anthony Trila, Dr. Harad Yarmamadi, and um, Dr. Nasir Marouche. We all came together and said, what is an important white paper that would be um, important for electrophysiologists and um, uh, people of our field. And what we thought we would provide instead of lots of tables were everyday clinical scenarios that we might see uh, in our patient clinics and which we might be approached about their wearables and whether or not they were appropriate in different clinical situations. So it was important for us to not only organize um, what the consumer available devices were, but how could they be used? What were their pitfalls, uh, their benefits and shortcomings in um, easily understandable clinical scenarios? And I think the committee altogether, we tried to piece uh, together the large randomized clinical trials, which have shown their utilization, for example, like the um, Apple Watch study, uh, versus what are the future directions and also the unknowns of these technologies that need to be answered. Terrific, terrific. Um, the, the paper has a very unusual and novel structure. Can you tell us a little bit about how you chose the structure of the paper and particularly how you chose the topics that you discussed throughout the paper? Yeah, so um, we definitely debated for a long time what is the proper structure for our readership, which is um, people uh, in the Heart Rhythm Society or people who practice cardiac electrophysiology. And once again, we wanted to um, put together common clinical scenarios that any uh, practitioner would see in their um, in their clinic. And in those different clinical scenarios, like patients with high CHAD score or patients after ablation, whether or not they're going to use a wearable to monitor if they have recurrence of AF 
or whether or not it's a young person who's an athlete using a variable all to uh, monitor their heart rate, what would be appropriate or what can we say so far from all the papers and studies done so far? And what can you possibly use it for? And what are the possible pitfalls that you need to be aware of? So for example, a wristband or a watch is a very common wearable. But some things that we mentioned um, in our paper in different clinical scenarios is, for example, patients with darker skin tones, the PPG, which is used to look at the heart rate, may not be as accurate in people with darker skin tones because most of the studies uh, were done with patients who had lighter skin tones. And also patients who have a larger BMI, the wristwatch may not fit as well, the contact may not be as um, a good fit, and so there might be limited accuracy in the data that is obtained from these wearables. So by using these common clinical day scenarios that um, practitioners can relate to, uh, we bring out the things that they should be aware of and what they could possibly use, uh, whereas things that they should talk to their patients about um, to be cautious about, uh, contact, accuracy of the wearables, and application to patients with high uh, risk factors for stroke and using these wearables for detection of AFib or those patients who have low risk factor, but they just want to know uh, whether or not um, their heart high heart rate is an arrhythmia or not. Now, the, the paper has a specific focus on the partnership between physicians and and the patients. Can you comment a little bit about um, how you foresee this um, paper help um, uh, foment this uh, relationship further? Right. So I think um, at Heart Rhythm Society and our whole entire committee, and uh, I'm sure at the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal, um, we're focusing not only on um, physicians and the patient relationship, but what we see in these digital wearables is also uh, the companies that produce these wearables and how can we can work together to improve the engineering and design and the software analysis um, through these wearables. And in fact, um, HRS has an um, upcoming special sessions, HRX, um, which is happening in December of this year to specifically encourage um, communication discussion between uh, the consumer, uh, the companies that make these consumer wearables, as well as physicians. So I think um, the importance of this paper is that we understand that the reader may be a practitioner, it may be a patient, or it might be an engineer or designer of these wearables. And we had a lot of input um, from the makers of these wearables as to whether or not we were profiling their uh, wearable or device correctly and whether it met their uh, their criteria that they're marketing it, uh, these devices for. And we wanted to use this um, platform in very uh, sort of layperson language so that patients could understand if they're reading this paper what might be things that they should look for in these devices and if it's applicable in their particular um, patient health scenario. So for example, like we discussed, whether or not a wristband is the right wearable for them or whether or not they should try a ring or a chest patch or a chest band, um, or for example, just using their smartphone um, uh, as, as a detector for any arrhythmias or, or any heart issues. Yeah, definitely clinicians and the patients struggle with choosing the right device for the right problem. And I want to get your sense of 
put your thoughts were as you were synthesizing this tremendous amount of data and trying to come up with, you know, the synthesis of what's out there. What was most striking uh, to you when you were synthesizing the data? Yes, I think, well, all of us um, in the committee, it was hard, um, even as practitioners, is that there's such a deluge of data from these wearables. And that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. Um, it's good as in we're getting a lot of personalized information from each patient. Um, but the difficulty is um, taking all this information and knowing what is uh, important for this particular patient compared to other patients. And I think one of the main future directions that we emphasize is definitely we need partnerships um, with the companies themselves about um, development of machine learning and AI um, to help physicians and humans process uh, this data into what is significant and what isn't significant for a particular patient. Um, so I think those were things that we definitely um, need to work on. Uh, I think we also, as a committee, uh, wrote this paper to highlight what was most important to us. There are so many different things, um, the data that we can get from wearables now, not only heart rate, right, but there's oxygenation, uh, the amount of hours of sleep, their activity, um, heart rate variability, um, those are all things that we get from da the data that we get from these wearables. But I think the purpose of this uh, paper, this white paper, was to discuss of all these uh, different data, what can we take from this as most important so far? So for example, uh, patients after an ablation for a heart arrhythmia looking for a recurrence of the arrhythmia, uh, whether or not their heart rate is controlled with their medical regimen, you know, those are things that we can look at. And I think later on, we want to look at whether or not uh, using these wearables for like an electrocardiogram, if you can predict who is at high risk um, for disease. And we saw recently in the heart rhythm scientific sessions that a lot of different groups are working on uh, AI and machine learning from ECGs um, to see whether or not we can predict patients with um, high risk for cardiovascular disease. And I think the question is, can we use this also, um, these different algorithms and wearables as well? No, that's, that's terrific. Um, now, there is one of the major problems that the clinicians have is that there is just constantly new devices on the market. There is new updates to the existing devices, and the clinicians have a hard time keeping up. Now, how do you imagine that this document will kind of evolve over time and evolve as the technologies get better and become different? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, a very important comment uh, because even as we were drafting this paper, so many changes were made throughout, you know, CE, mark, FDA approval. So we really wanted to design this to be a living document where it could be updated um, maybe twice a year or every year, depending on the, um, the market influx of new wearables, to constantly add uh, more devices that are available to our patients and put increase our tables and better knowledge uh, based on clinical studies, uh, whether or not these wearables that come out are applicable to our patients in different clinical scenarios. So definitely what our vision uh, is that it will be a living document that will be constantly updated with more information um, that will be um, open to consumers, patients, as well as physicians, who are maybe the prescribers or the people end up um, reading the data from these wearables. Now, Elaine, do you, do you think that um, 
for this field to move forward, particularly document like this, to kind of continue to exist. There needs to be this constant dialogue between clinicians and industry. And if if so, how do we facilitate that? Um, particularly, how do we encourage the kind of evidence that's needed to be, for us to be able to use these clinically on a day-to-day practice? Yeah, right. I think um, that's a key point that we brought up in this paper that um, we really need large randomized clinical trials, um, not necessarily in normal patients, but patients um, who have abnormal heart rhythms to look at the accuracy of the, these devices and how we can use them um, in different uh, clinical, important clinical case scenarios. For example, if we wanted to say PVCs or um, superventricular tachycardias or AFib. Um, so I think that it's important for us to have more trials that look at not just normal patients, but whether or not these wearables are good at detecting um, actually patients with abnormalities and how we can use them for these patients with abnormalities um, to improve their healthcare, um, either better treatment, earlier detection, um, or monitoring how they're doing with treatment, um, uh, how we can incorporate more of these devices into the lives of our patients. And of course, the the great things about these devices is that one, they're um, easily um, purchasable, you know, by our patients, the consumer. Uh, Two, it allows an easy uh, communication between patient and physician. Uh, But then the downside is it becomes such a deluge of data information for us as physicians or healthcare providers when we have a lot of patients with these wearables and how do we organize all of this and incorporate this into the electronic medical record and sort out through this data to let them know that we're aware that, you know, it's a normal finding or abnormal finding. So I think it's just the tip of the iceberg that we're touching, but definitely something that we needed to do to summarize the knowledge that we have now and also summarize what we don't know and what we should look forward to to improve um, the usage of digital health in our um, healthcare practices. Do you think that there is a role for us through documents similar to this and advocacy to try to bridge the gap in adoption of these technologies? Particularly, I want to kind of get your thoughts on how you foresee document like this helping um, with the reimbursement and financing of these very expensive technologies. Yeah, I think that's a a big um, question that probably needs to be tackled by different societies. You know, there are, there's definitely a worldwide phenomenon, right? Digital health, it's not just America and Europe and in Asia, people are using digital health uh, wearables. And just like you said, Hamid, right now, um, a lot of uh, monitoring is not necessarily reimbursable. And I think as a society, we need to talk about what data needs to be um, documented and analyzed and um, how physicians can put that one in the electronic medical record, improve patient care, and then how does that translate to reimbursement for their time and their care for patients? Um, But I think number one is if everyone in the society knew about what data they could get and how the data can be used, what might be the pitfalls, um, then I think it's a first step for a dialogue between um, the policymakers and also um, members of our society. Mm, well, that's, that's exactly 
the, um, the thoughts that we're having in, in the society and in the journal. And that's a big part of what we're doing in the journal to try to bridge that gap, kind of introduce the science that's needed for us to make those kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I want to kind of uh, shift our focus a little bit and ask a little bit about you, Elaine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly you're a trailbla- trailblazer in this field and um, a lot of the young um, clinicians and uh, want to kind of get involved in digital health. Do you have any advice for them and kind of how to get involved in a field like this? Because, you know, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of um, areas like machine learning, digital health that can be very intimidating for new scientists and new clinicians. What advice do you have for an up-and-coming clinician who's interested in this field? Well, one, I think they should call you, <laughs> not me, uh, because I think you're more of a trailblazer in uh, machine learning and, and digital health than I am. I mean, you're the deputy editor of the journal, so you must be reading and getting lots of um, uh, cutting-edge uh, manuscripts of what's being developed. Um, I think definitely passion and uh, drive is important. Um, getting to know the people of the digital health committee um, of course, the committee is composed of senior leaders and up-and-coming leaders, um, as well as fellows as well, and nurses. So I think it's a very diverse group that can definitely use help. I think that's one way. Um, I think definitely the up-and-coming HRX, which is a, a conglomerate of engineers, um, physicians, um, and business people, is a great fertile ground um, to collaborate and work on something uh, new. And in HRX, there's acceptance for abstracts too. So that's definitely one way to get um, your research known or to develop new ideas for research. So I think that's a definitely good way to start. Um, definitely uh, Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal has been a great initiative by HRS, uh, as well as your work and uh, Dave McManus putting the journal together. So I think Knowing what's coming up, what people are working on will put any young investigator in the right track to develop their own career. And I think that's very important, knowing what's out there so far and what they could possibly contribute. You know, I certainly agree with your assessment. And I think HRX provides the platform that's actually been missing um, in this field, an opportunity for young clinicians to partner with and kind of get to know what's in the out there and partner with the key stakeholders, particularly people that are outside of their field. So HRX, certainly, um, if, you, if you're interested, that would be a great way to get uh, started in the field. Now, Elaine, uh, what is, what's next for uh, Elaine Juan? And what, what, do you, um, what should we expect next from you in this field? Um, well, one, I think as a committee, we, we're trying to figure out um, how to further broaden um, digital health uh, education for providers as well as patients. So HRX is, for example, um, an idea for this year, and we'll see how that goes in December. Um, obviously, the committee leaders for, for that are uh, Mintu and Sana, so we'll see um uh, after their chairing of the session, what are the insights from that? Um, I'm just a soldier in the CUNY, <laughs> so I don't think that I'm a thought leader to come up with new ideas, but I think that under the leadership of um, uh, the people, of the committee leaders, like, for example, past year was uh, Nasir coming up with these papers and these new initiatives, it's great. Um, and I think other things that we're going to look for, like you talk about, is 
um, more nitty gritty um, policy making and the reimbursement um, of these uh, digital health data. Like, what can we do with it? So, hopefully, they make more headway. Um, definitely, I am willing, ready, and able to help with the next uh, paper, which might be an update of this uh, white paper on what other uh, new uh, new devices there are. But what I'm most excited about is more clinical trials coming out um, about these wearables and how they're helpful for detection of AFib and cardiovascular disease. I think it's only through these um, randomized control trials do we know, one, how to incorporate these devices into a clinical workflow, and two, um, how we can use them in, uh, appropriately and efficiently in our patients. So I think definitely the data leads us to where we're going to go next. No, I think you're too modest, but you're, um, you're certainly a leader in our field. And we're looking forward to seeing um, what you do next. Um, thank you so much, Elaine, for taking the time. Certainly your paper is one of the most important um, papers that have come out in this area, and we're looking forward to see what comes next after this. Thank you for taking the time, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for watching this podcast.